Well, there's only a slight kernel of truth here. You do burn both fat and carbohydrates when you exercise, and the proportion varies with the intensity of exercise. A very low-intensity activity, like walking, taps mainly into fat stores, whereas high-intensity sprints pull much more heavily from carbohydrate stores. At about 60% of maximum exertion, your body gets about half of its energy from carbohydrate stores and half from fat stores, which is why many experts claim that you should work in the range of 60-70% to 70% of maximum exertion. Based on this, you might think that I'm arguing for steady-state cardio, cardio that involves steadily keeping your effort and heartbeat in a certain range, but there's more to consider. The first issue is total calories burned while exercising. If you walk off 100 calories, 85 of which come from fat stores, that isn't as effective as spending that time in a moderate run that burns off 200 calories with 100 coming from fat. And that, in turn, isn't as effective as spending that time doing sprint intervals that burn off 500 calories with 150 coming from fat. Sprinting's benefits extend beyond the calories burned while exercising, though. A study conducted by scientists at the University of Western Ontario gives us insight into just how much more effective high-intensity cardio is. Researchers had 10 men and 10 women trained three times per week, with one group doing between four and six 30-second treadmill sprints, with four minutes of rest in between each, and the other group doing 30 to 60 minutes of steady-state cardio, running on the treadmill at the magical fat loss zone of 65% VO2 max. The results? After six weeks of training, the subjects doing the intervals had lost significantly more body fat. Yes, four to six 30-second sprints burn more fat than 60 minutes of incline treadmill walking. These findings are supported by several other studies, such as those conducted by researchers at Laval University, East Tennessee State University, Baylor College of Medicine, and the University of New South Wales which have all shown that shorter, high-intensity cardio sessions result in greater fat loss over time than longer, low-intensity sessions. Although the exact mechanisms of how high-intensity cardio trumps steady-state cardio for fat loss purposes aren't fully understood yet, scientists have isolated quite a few of the factors, which include the following. Increased resting metabolic rate for more than 24 hours after exercise. Improved insulin sensitivity in the muscles. Higher levels of fat oxidation in the muscles. Significant spikes in growth hormone levels, which aid in fat loss, and catecholamine levels, chemicals your body produces to directly induce fat mobilization, and post-exercise appetite suppression. High-intensity interval training not only burns more fat in less time than steady-state cardio, but it also preserves muscular size and improves performance as well. Research has shown that the longer your cardio sessions are, the more they impair strength and hypertrophy. Thus, keeping your cardio sessions short is important when we're talking about maximizing your gains in the weight room and preserving your muscle. Only high-intensity interval training allows you to do this and burn enough fat to make it worthwhile. I like the recumbent bike for my cardio, and here's how I do it. 1. I start my workout with 2-3 to three minutes of low-intensity warm-up on the lowest resistance. Two, I then bump the resistance up several notches to give me something to pedal against, but not so much that my quads get fried in just one bout, and I pedal as fast as possible for 60 seconds. If you're new to HIIT, you may need to start with 30 to 45 second sprints. Three, I then reduce the resistance to its slowest setting and pedal at a moderate pace for the same amount of time as my high intensity interval, 60 seconds. If you're new to HIIT, you may need to extend this rest period to one and a half to two times your high-intensity intervals. If you sprint for 30 seconds, you may need 45 to 60 seconds of recovery. Four, I then repeat this cycle of all-out and recovery intervals for 25 to 30 minutes. Five, I finish with a two to three minute cool down at a low intensity. That's it. I'll bring my iPad and read or watch something and the time flies by. If you'd like to do a different form of HIIT cardio, such as rowing, sprinting, swimming, jump roping, or anything else that permits it, go for it. You can apply the same simple principles, relatively short bursts of maximum effort that spike your heart rate, followed by low-intensity recovery periods that bring it down to normal levels. 
If you want to include some steady-state cardio in your routine, that's fine as well. Just know that it's not as effective for fat loss purposes, and that if you do too much of it, you can impair muscle growth. Personally, I wouldn't do more than 45 to 60 minutes of steady-state cardio in one session. And in terms of weekly frequency, we'll talk about that in a minute. The best time to do cardio. When you do your cardio in relation to your weightlifting matters. Researchers from RMIT University worked with well-trained athletes in 2009 and found that combining resistance exercise and cardio in the same session may disrupt genes for anabolism. In layman's terms, they found that combining endurance and resistance training sends mixed signals to the muscles. Cardio before the resistance training suppressed anabolic hormones such as IGF-1 and MGF, and cardio after resistance training increased muscle tissue breakdown. Several other studies, such as those conducted by researchers from the Children's National Medical Center, the Waikato Institute of Technology, and the University of Javascula in Finland, came to the same conclusions. Training for both endurance and strength simultaneously impairs your gains on both fronts. Training purely for strength or purely for endurance in a workout is far superior. Cardio before weightlifting also saps your energy and makes it much harder to train heavy which in turn inhibits your muscle growth. Therefore, I recommend that you separate your weightlifting and cardio sessions by at least a few hours if at all possible. Personally, I lift early in the morning and do my cardio after work, before dinner. If there's no way that you can split up your cardio and weightlifting, do your weight training first as cardio first will drain energy that you'll want for your lifting. While this arrangement isn't ideal, it's not a huge problem. You can still do well on the program. If you can, I recommend having a protein shake after your weightlifting and before your cardio, as this will help mitigate the muscle breakdown. How often you should do cardio. In terms of frequency, here's how I do it. When I'm bulking, I do two 25-minute HIIT sessions per week. When I'm cutting, I do three to five 25-minute HIIT sessions per week. When I'm maintaining, I do two to three 25-minute HIIT sessions per week. I never do more than five cardio sessions per week, as I've found my strength begins to drop off in the gym if I do. Many people are shocked to learn that I do no more than one and a half to two hours of cardio per week while cutting, but am able to get to the 6-7% to 7 body fat range with ease. Well, the idea that you have to do a ton of cardio to get shredded is a complete myth. It's not only unnecessary, but unhealthy as well. You don't have to do cardio to lose fat. But if you want to get down to the 10% range or below, I can pretty much guarantee you'll have to do at least two to three sessions per week. If you'd like to stick with steady-state cardio or include it in your routine, stick with the frequency recommendations given earlier. You can mix and match modalities, HIIT versus low-intensity steady-state or LISS, but I still wouldn't do more than five sessions per week. The bottom line. Congratulations, you've just learned the core principles of the Bigger, Leaner, Stronger training program. Chances are that this is a new approach to training for you, and if that's the case, you should be excited. Soon you're going to be enjoying explosive muscle growth and rapid fat loss by doing relatively short, stimulating workouts that you look forward to every day and that get the kind of results other guys can only dream about. You're never going to burn yourself out with hours and hours of grueling cardio either. In fact, if you're like me, you'll come to enjoy your cardio sessions because they'll noticeably improve your performance and overall health without eating up large chunks of your free time. Next on the agenda is the discussion of the individual weightlifting exercises you're going to be performing on the program. Carry on to find out. Chapter Summary Weightlifting while a small number of machines are worth using, such as the leg press machine or cable setup, the vast majority are inferior to dumbbell and barbell exercises in terms of producing bigger, stronger muscles. The average guy needs to build a strong overall foundation of strength and muscle, and there's only one way to do that naturally. You have to do a lot of heavy compound weightlifting. To achieve maximum overload and muscle stimulation, you will train one or two muscle groups per workout per day. You're going to be working in the 4 to 6 rep range for nearly all exercises. The workouts on this program will call for 9 to 12 heavy or working sets per workout.
Due to the amount of weight you're using in bigger, leaner, stronger workouts, you should rest for three to four minutes in between your working sets. You should be able to finish every bigger, leaner, stronger workout in 60 to 65 minutes. Between each of its eight-week phases, the Bigger, Leaner, Stronger program includes a choice between what is known as a deload week and several days or even an entire week off the weights. I recommend that you start with deload weeks, but if you don't feel reinvigorated by the end of them and physically and mentally ready to hit the heavy weights again, then I recommend that you try no training whatsoever for at least four to five days before getting back to it. The Bigger, Leaner, Stronger program has a simple method of progression. Once you hit six reps for one set, you add weight for your next set. The standard increase is a total of 10 pounds, five pounds added to either side of the barbell or a five-pound increase in each dumbbell. So long as you keep hitting the weights hard, your muscles will grow, and as your muscles grow, you'll get more and more of a pump from heavy lifting. The rep timing I recommend is either the 2-1-2 or 2-1-1 timing. This means the first part of the rep should take about 2 seconds, which is followed by a 1 second or shorter pause, which is followed by the final portion of the rep, which should take between 1 and 2 seconds. Training heavy is especially important when you're cutting because the name of the game is muscle preservation, and you need to keep overloading the muscles to accomplish this. A high-intensity workout is one where you feel like you didn't leave anything in the tank. You didn't settle for a lighter weight when you felt you could have gone up. Your mind wasn't wandering elsewhere while you were lifting. You weren't just robotically going through the motions. You were consciously but calmly pounding out every rep and every set with determination. By focus, I mean mental concentration, having your mind on your lifts and not on the TV show you watched last night, the party later that night, the argument with your girlfriend, or whatever else. Cardio. Cardio can help your body repair muscle damage more quickly because it increases blood flow to various areas of the body. Cardio improves insulin sensitivity and in this way can help your muscles better absorb the nutrients you eat, which can mean more muscle growth and less fat storage over time. By keeping regular cardio in year-round, you can maintain your metabolic conditioning and prevent the systemic shell shock that many people experience during the beginning of a cut. The muscle-related benefits of cardio are especially true if the exercise closely imitates the motions used in exercises performed to build muscle, like cycling or rowing. HIIT not only burns more fat in less time than steady-state cardio, but it preserves muscular size and performance better as well. If you'd like to do a different form of HIIT cardio, such as rowing, sprinting, swimming, jump roping, or anything else that permits it, go for it. If you want to include some steady-state cardio in your routine, that's fine as well. Just know that it's not as effective for fat loss purposes, and that if you do too much of it, you can impair muscle growth. I recommend that you separate your weightlifting and cardio sessions by at least a few hours, if at all possible. If there's no way that you can split up your cardio and weightlifting, do your weight training first, as cardio first will drain energy that you'll want for your lifting. When I'm bulking, I do two 25-minute HIIT sessions per week. When I'm cutting, I do three to five 25-minute HIIT sessions per week. When I'm maintaining, I do three 25-minute HIIT sessions per week. I never do more than five cardio sessions per week, as I found my strength begins to drop off in the gym if I do. You don't have to do cardio to lose fat, but if you want to get down to the 10% range or below, I can pretty much guarantee you'll have to do at least two or three sessions per week. Chapter 17, The Bigger, Leaner, Stronger Training Program There is no reason to be alive if you can't do the deadlift. John Paul Sigmarson now that you understand the basic principles and premises of the Bigger, Leaner, Stronger training methodologies, let's look at the exercises you'll be performing and how to train each major muscle group properly. Meet your makers, the four lifts that build strong muscular bodies. Out of the hundreds and hundreds of exercises you could possibly do, four reign supreme. If you neglect them like I did when I started lifting, you're guaranteed to never reach your genetic potential in terms of size, strength, and performance. These exercises are the squat, deadlift, bench press, and military press, and their timeless power has been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt by over a century of bodybuilders, strongmen, and athletes. 
There are popular training programs out there that have you do nothing but these four exercises, such as starting strength and 5 by 5 and one of your primary goals with your bigger, leaner, stronger training is to improve your performance of these key lifts. If you can do that, you're going to be able to build the body you want. It's that simple. Unfortunately, however, many guys neglect these exercises, with the exception of the bench press, of course, or do them incorrectly, thus robbing themselves of potential gains. Most guys stop their bench press six inches or more above their chests and their military press above their chins because it's better for the shoulders. They load up a bunch of plates and squat down a foot or two and stand back up because they don't want to hurt their knees. They round their backs when deadlifting so they can really go heavy. Well, not only does improper form dramatically reduce the effectiveness of exercises, but it also opens the door to injury. Heavy half reps, whether on a bench press, military press, or squat, put large amounts of strain on your joints, tendons, and ligaments, much more than if you were moving less weight through a proper, full range of motion, gradually strengthening the muscles and supporting tissues. When deadlifting, hunching your back to get the weight up and then severely arching your lower back during the lockout is just all wrong, a nasty injury waiting to happen. On the flip side, if you lift with strict attention to form and a full range of motion, you'll enjoy full development of your muscles, steady strength gains, and no unnecessary injuries or pains. Ignorance is certainly one of the primary reasons why so many guys lift with poor form. They just never learn how to train correctly, and there is a bit of technical skill to it, but laziness is another main reason. These four exercises are hard when performed correctly. A full butt-below parallel squat is brutal when compared to a wussy little half rep. If everyone had to touch the bar to their chest when bench pressing, you'd see a lot less weight on the bars and a lot of sour faces. There's also the problem of determining what proper form is. There are quite a few authoritative opinions as to what a proper squat, deadlift, bench press, and military press look like. One well-respected coach might say your toes should never go past your knees when you squat while another says it's natural and recommended. One might say rounding the upper part of the spine when you deadlift is okay, while another says it's dangerous. Who's right? How can we know? And why should you listen to me? Well, in this case, I'm going to pass the buck to the man whose work taught me, and hundreds of thousands of others, how to squat, bench press, deadlift, and military press heavy and pain-free. Mark Ripito. Rip, as he's known, has been in this game for nearly four decades and is a renowned and highly respected strength coach. He's the author of several books, including the iconic Starting Strength, and his weightlifting methods are used by professional athletes of all kinds and laymen alike. I'm going to teach you Rip's methods of pushing, pulling, and squatting because they've withstood the tests of time and large numbers. They're safe and effective, and they don't require anything special in terms of physical prowess. I'm going to give you everything you need to perform the exercises properly and safely, but I definitely recommend that you read Starting Strength if you want to dive into the biomechanics of each movement. So, let's start our discussion of the exercises you'll be performing on the program with the most important lifts and learn exactly how to do them correctly. The Squat Many guys think leg training consists of loading up the leg press with every plate in the gym and using tourniquet-tight knee wraps and a weight belt cinched to its tightest notch, only to wiggle into the sled, grind out a few excruciating quarter reps, and celebrate with an ear-splitting yell and high fives with his buddies. Good news, that's not going to be you. You're going to be the guy in the corner with the squat rack, you know, the loneliest place in the gym, quietly going about your business with deep, heavy squats. No wraps, no belts, no swagger. Just a bar bending across your back, loaded with a measly few hundred pounds. Yes, you'll get there, and a puddle of sweat on the ground. Who's going to be the winner in the end? Who's going to consistently get bigger and stronger? And who's the least likely to get hurt? You, of course. While many guys will do anything for leg training before putting the barbell on their backs, they're missing out on what many of the top strength coaches in the world consider the absolute toughest and most rewarding exercise we can do. To nobody's surprise, squatting strengthens every muscle in your legs, which doesn't just increase the amount of weight you can lift, it also helps you run faster and jump higher, and it improves flexibility, mobility, and agility. And as if those aren't reasons enough to squat regularly, it's also an incredibly effective core workout. Laziness aside, why do so many people avoid squatting? 
Well, more often than not, they've fallen victim to the myths that the squat is bad for your back and knees, a lie that has been perpetuated for about five decades now. It all started with work done in the 1960s, when research concluded that a deep squat stretched the knee ligaments too far, increasing the risk of injury. These findings spread like wildfire through the fitness world, and some U.S. military services even cut squatting movements out of their training programs. It was noted at the time that the studies had serious flaws, including a choice of subjects and researcher bias, but that wasn't enough to stop the uprising against the squat. For instance, one of the studies was done with parachute jumpers, whose knees had been repeatedly pounded with violent impacts and twisted all over the place in parachute lines. Well, much more research has been done since then, and a much different picture has emerged. A rigorous study conducted by scientists at Duke University involved the analysis of more than two decades of published literature to determine, in great detail, the biomechanics of the squat exercise and the stresses it places on the ankles, knees, hip joint, and spine. Highlights from the paper and many studies reviewed within set the record straight on how the squat affects our bodies and teaches us a lot about proper squat form. The hamstrings counteract the pull on the shin bone which neutralizes the shearing force placed on the knee and alleviates stress on the ACL. Even in extreme cases, such as powerlifters lifting two and a half times their body weight, the compressive forces placed on the knee and its tendons are well within its ranges of ultimate strength. Stress placed on the ACL is negligible considering its ultimate strength. In one study, the highest ACL force recorded when squatting was a mere 6% of its ultimate strength. The highest recorded PCL forces were well within natural strength limits. If you maintain a neutral spine position while squatting, instead of a rigidly flexed position, you greatly reduce the shearing force placed on your vertebrae. Your spine is better at dealing with compressive force than shearing. Maintaining a posture as close to upright as possible further reduces this force, as does increasing intra-abdominal pressure, which you can create by holding your breath while you squat and gazing straight ahead instead of down. In closing, researchers from Duke University concluded that the squat does not compromise knee stability and can enhance stability if performed correctly. Furthermore, any risks of spinal injury can be avoided by simply minimizing the shearing force placed on the spine. After their own extensive review of the literature, the National Strength and Conditioning Association came to the same conclusion. Squats, when performed correctly and with appropriate supervision, are not only safe, but may be a significant deterrent to knee injuries. So rest easy. As long as you use proper squat form, the squat does not put your back or knees at risk of injury. The real problem with the squat is that few people do it correctly. The most common error is, of course, doing partial reps by not lowering the body until the hips drop lower than the knees. There are other common mistakes, though. Too narrow of a stance, too wide of a stance, bowing the knees, the early butt wink, and more. Well, let's make sure you don't make any of the same mistakes by breaking the lift down into its different parts and analyzing how it works. The Squat Setup In this section, I'm going to walk you through the squat step by step. If you're having trouble visualizing my words, check out the images contained in the bonus report and it'll be crystal clear. I recommend that you always squat in a power rack or squat rack with the safety bars or pins set six inches or so below the height of the bar at the bottom of the rep, which you'll learn about in a minute. Do this even if you have a spotter. Position the bar on the rack so it cuts across the upper half of your chest. This might feel a bit low, but it's better to have it on the low side than trying to tippy-toe heavy weight off the rack. Face the bar so you can walk it out backward. Don't ever walk the bar out forward, as trying to re-rack it by walking backward is dangerous. Get under the bar and place your heels at about shoulder width apart, with the toes rotated out by about 20 to 25 degrees. Your right foot should be at about 1 o'clock and your left at about 11 o'clock. When you're ready to unrack the bar, bring your shoulder blades together, tighten your entire upper back, raise your chest up, and straighten your lower back. Put the bar below the bone at the top of your shoulder blades, solidly across your upper back muscles and rear deltoids. Do not put the bar on your neck. Use a narrow grip because this helps you maintain upper back tightness. Place your thumbs on top of the bar. 
You want all of the weight resting on your back, with none on your hands. This is important. The wide grip that many people use slackens the back muscles, which provide crucial support for the weight and transfers the load to the spine. Don't follow their lead. This tight, hands-in position will probably feel a bit awkward at first, and you might need to improve your shoulder flexibility to get there. If you're not flexible enough yet, that's okay. Get as close to the proper position as you can, ensuring that your shoulder blades are pinched and that the weight is solidly on your back. You're not holding the load in your hands. As you continue to train and stretch, you'll be able to get your hands in close. The Squat Movement Once you've unracked the weight, take one or two steps back and assume the proper squatting position as outlined earlier. Heels shoulder-width apart, toes pointed out. Pick a spot on the floor about six feet away and stare at it for the entirety of the set. Don't look up at the ceiling, as this makes it hard to reach the proper bottom position, can throw off proper hip movement and chest positioning, and can even cause a neck injury. You're now ready to start the downward motion, which is accomplished by shifting the hips back and sitting the butt straight down while keeping the chest up and the entire back straight and tight. Many people have the tendency to want to transfer the load to the quads as they descend and accomplish this by sliding the knees too far forward. Well, if your knees push too far past your toes as you descend, they're put in a compromising position that can lead to all kinds of pains and problems, particularly with the patellar tendon under the kneecap. A good rule of thumb is that the forward motion of the knees should occur in the first third or half of the descent, and they should go no further than just in front of the toes. Once the knees are out of the way and in place, the movement becomes a simple drop of the hips straight down, followed by a rise straight up. The bottom of the squat is the point where your hips are back and slightly lower than your kneecaps, which causes your femurs to be a little lower than parallel with the ground. Your knees are just a little forward of the toes and the back is straight, but not necessarily arched, and at an angle that places the bar over the middle of the foot. I recommend that you practice this movement with no bar to get a feel for it. If you want to score bonus points, put yourself on camera so you can ensure that what you think you're doing is actually what you're doing. Once you've reached the bottom of the squat, you drive your butt straight up, not forward, and raise your shoulders at the same pace. To do this, you must maintain a back angle that keeps the weight over the middle of your foot. If your hips rise faster than your shoulders, you'll start tipping forward, which puts heavy strain on the neck and back. Don't think about anything but driving your hips straight up while keeping your chest up and maintaining the proper spine angle, and you'll ascend correctly. Squat Tips If you're having trouble getting your knees to remain in line with your feet as you descend and ascend, you can do a simple mobility exercise that works like this. Squat with no weight, and at the bottom, place your elbows against your knees and the palms of your hands together, and nudge your knees out. Work your knees in and out for a good 20 to 30 seconds, rest, and repeat this a few times. If you do this several times per week, you'll quickly notice a difference in your ability to maintain the proper position when you start adding weight. If you need to place the bar a bit higher on your back, due to shoulder stiffness, the angles change slightly. You can see this in the image in the bonus report. When the bar is higher up on your back, this is called a high bar squat position. And when it's lower, it's in the low bar squat position, which I prefer. While the low bar squatting position produces less torque on the knees than the high bar position, the magnitude of both forces are well within tolerable ranges, making neither position better than the other in this regard. Use whichever squatting position is most comfortable for you. Squatting too rapidly increases the shearing and compressive forces placed on your knees. Make sure your descent is controlled. Don't simply drop your hips as quickly as you can. Take a deep breath at the top of the first rep when you're standing tall and hold it, tightening your entire torso. You can hold your breath as you perform the rep or exhale slightly, maybe 10% of the air you're holding, on the way up, and then fill up with air again at the top. Don't squat on a Smith machine unless you have no other choice. It forces an unnatural range of motion that can be quite uncomfortable, and research has shown it's less effective than the barbell squat performed with free weight. If your back tends to round as you descend, causing what's known as the butt wink, it's because your hamstrings are too tight. Stretch them every day, but not before lifting, as studies have shown that this saps strength and does nothing to prevent the risk of injury. 
and as they loosen, you'll find that you can keep your lower back in a neutral position until you hit the very bottom, when your pelvis naturally rotates down a little. Don't point your feet straight forward, as this can increase stress on the knees. As the stance widens, the body naturally wants the feet to be parallel with the thighs. By twisting them in and squatting, you force an unnatural torque on the knees that can lead to bowing them in as you ascend, which increases the risk of injury. You can start your ascension by creating a little bounce at the bottom of the squat as your hamstrings, glutes, and groin muscles stretch to the limit of their natural ranges of motion. Don't use a powerlifter's super-wide squatting stance unless you're actually powerlifting. This type of stance does allow for more weight to be lifted, but it reduces the roll of the quads in the lift. If you feel the need to squat with blocks or plates under your heels, it's because you need more hamstring and or ankle flexibility. Check out Dr. Kelly Starrett's work on improving hamstring and ankle mobility so you can squat as described in this chapter. Believe it or not, the wrong shoes can make squatting significantly harder. Bad shoes are those with a soft or unstable sole or raised heel, as this promotes instability during the lift, and those with too high of a heel, which shifts your body weight and thus your knees too far forward as you descend and ascend. By using shoes with flat soles or proper weightlifting shoes with a slight rigid heel elevation, you'll find it much easier to sit back onto your heels and engage your hamstrings and glutes more effectively. You'll find my shoe recommendations in the bonus report at the end of the book. Squat Variations There are quite a few variations of the squat, but the majority are inferior to the basic movement and thus not recommended. That said, there is one variation that is fantastic and included in the Bigger, Leaner, Stronger program, the Front Squat. Front Squat The Front Squat emphasizes the quadriceps and core and creates less compression of the spine and less torque in the knees, which makes it particularly useful for those with back or knee injuries or limitations. It also makes it easier to achieve proper depth. Like the back squat, you set up for a front squat with your feet about shoulder width apart and your toes slightly pointed out. There are different ways to grip the bar, but I recommend the position used for the Olympic lift, known as the clean, which you can see in the bonus report. If this places too much stress on your wrists, you can alleviate this by removing a finger or two from under the bar, such as the thumb and pinky. In this position, the barbell sits on the front of your shoulders, which requires that your upper back muscles work harder, that your torso stays upright, and that your chest and elbows remain up and forward. Don't try to hold the bar above your shoulders with your hands or your wrists will start hurting. It's uncomfortable at first, but you want your shoulders to carry the load. Maintain this tight vertical position for the entire lift. To begin the descent, take a deep breath and stabilize your core. Push your hips out and squat straight down, keeping your knees in line with the toes until your thighs are just below parallel to the ground. You'll notice that this pushes your knees a bit more forward than the back squat, which is normal. Drive through your heels to begin the ascent and keep your chest up, back tight, and elbows high. The Bench Press If you're new to weightlifting, get ready for every guy you know to start asking how much you bench. Although it's one of the easier exercises to perform, squatting and deadlifting are much harder. Bench pressing a lot of weight is just synonymous with being manly and strong, I guess. Thus, guys rarely miss chest day, and the strong desire to bench a few plates or more often leads to many mistakes, failing to bring the weight all the way down, overarching the back, raising the butt off the bench, shrugging or rolling the shoulders at the top, flaring the elbows, and more. Well, while you can cheat on something like dumbbell curls without risking much in the way of injury, the bench press is different. If you don't know what you're doing and try to press large amounts of weight with poor form, it's easy to hurt your shoulders, which can then take what feels like forever to heal and rehab. Bench press properly, however, and you'll keep your shoulders safe and your chest growing bigger and stronger. Let's talk about how this works. Bench Press Setup a strong bench press starts with a strong base, and here's how it works. Lie down on the bench and screw your shoulder blades in by retracting them in toward each other and down toward your waist. Create an arch in your lower back that's big enough to fit a fist between it and the bench. Your chest should be raised as if you're going to show it to someone, and you'll want to keep it up like this for the entire lift. 
Your grip should be a few inches wider than shoulder width, about 22 to 28 inches depending on your build. If you get too narrow, you'll be relying too much on the triceps. Incidentally, the close grip bench press is a fantastic triceps exercise, but we'll talk about that later. And if you get too wide, you'll reduce the range of motion and overall effectiveness of the exercise. Don't use a thumbless or suicide grip, as it's aptly called, which has your thumbs next to your index fingers as opposed to wrapped around the bar. While people give various reasons for liking the thumbless grip, its disadvantage is obvious. When you're going heavy, it's surprisingly easy for the barbell to slip out of your hands and crash down on your chest, or worse, your neck. Just Google thumbless grip bench press accident if you don't believe me. Put the bar in the palm of your hand, not in your fingers, because this leads to wrist pains. Grip the bar hard. Try to crush it like spaghetti, as this will give you a little boost in strength. Create a stable lower body base by placing your feet directly beneath your knees, which should be angled outward, tightening your quads and activating your glutes. The upper part of your leg should be parallel to the floor, and the lower part should be perpendicular, forming a 90-degree angle, which allows you to push through your heels as you ascend, creating the leg drive that you've probably heard of. The powerlifting style of bench press with the heels elevated is fine too if you prefer it. Once you've done all the above, you've put yourself in the position that you want to maintain throughout the entire lift. Bench press movement. Unrack the bar by locking your elbows out to move the bar off the hooks and move the bar into position with your elbows still locked. Don't try to bring the weight straight from the hooks to your chest and don't drop your chest and loosen your shoulder blades when unracking because it will make you shrug the bar off with your shoulders. Research has shown that keeping your arms at about a 45-degree angle relative to your torso and using a medium grip are the best ways to protect your shoulders while performing the bench press. However, 45 degrees on the nose isn't necessarily right for everyone. You'll want to find the position between 30 and 60 degrees that is most comfortable for you. The proper bench press movement is a controlled lowering of the bar all the way down to the bottom of your chest, over your nipples, followed by an explosive drive upward. The bar should move in a straight line up and down, not towards your face or belly button. There's a never-ending debate over whether you should bring the bar to your chest. Many fitness experts claim that you should lower the weight no further than the point where your upper arms are parallel to the floor, as going any deeper places too much stress on the shoulders. This is nonsense. Reducing the range of motion only reduces the effectiveness of the exercise, and the shoulders are only at risk of injury when the improper technique is used. By using a full range of motion with proper form, you'll maximize muscle growth while preventing injury. Don't watch the bar as it moves, as this will likely cause you to vary its angles of descent and ascent. Instead, pick a spot on the ceiling to look at during the exercise and see the bar going down and up in relation to it. The goal is to bring it up to the same spot for each rep. Keep your elbows tucked in the starting position the entire time, paying special attention during the ascension, as this is when people usually flare them out to gain leverage. Increasing the angle relative to your torso makes it easier to get the weight up, but puts undue stress on the shoulders. Bench Press Tips Don't allow your chest to go flat while doing the press, and don't allow your shoulders to shrug or roll forward at the top of a rep. Keep your chest up, elbows tucked, and shoulder blades pinched and retracted. Use your legs to drive against the floor. This transfers force up through the hips and back, which helps maintain proper form and can increase the pushing force you can generate. Keep your butt on the bench at all times. If your butt is lifting, the weight is probably too heavy. The three points of contact that you should always maintain are the upper back, stays down on the bench, the butt, ditto, and the feet, stay planted on the floor. Don't bounce the bar off your chest. Lower it in a controlled manner, keeping everything tight. Then let it touch your chest and drive it up. Don't smash the back of your head into the bench, as this can strain your neck. Your neck will naturally tighten while doing the exercise, but don't forcefully push it down. When you're lowering the weight, think about the coming drive up. Visualize the explosive second half of the exercise the entire time, and you'll find it easier to control the descent of the weight, prevent bouncing, and even prepare your muscles for the imminent stress of raising the bar. This technique is good for all exercises, by the way. Make sure to finish your last rep before trying to rack the weight. 
Many guys make the mistake of moving the bar toward their faces on the way up during their last rep. What if they miss the rep and it starts coming down or misses the hooks? It's not pretty. Instead, press the weight straight up as usual. Lock your elbows out, move the bar back to the rack until it hits the uprights, and then lower it to the hooks. Bench Press Variations As a part of the Bigger, Leaner, Stronger program, you're going to do two variations of the basic bench press, the Incline Bench Press and Close Grip Bench Press. Incline Bench Press The upper chest debate is one of the many controversial subjects in the world of weightlifting. Do you need to do chest exercises specifically for the upper chest, or do all chest exercises stimulate all available muscle fibers? And even more to the point, is there even such a thing as the upper chest? Well, I'll keep this short and sweet. There is a muscle that forms what we call the upper chest. It's known as the clavicular pectoralis, and you can see what it looks like in the bonus report. Despite what people might tell you, this muscle is not a part of the big chest muscle, the pectoralis major. While part of the pectoralis major shares nerves with the clavicular pectoralis, the angle of the muscle fibers varies greatly. Thus, certain movements can emphasize the pectoralis major, and others can emphasize the clavicular pectoralis. Notice that I say emphasize, not isolate. That's because all movements that emphasize one of the two do, to some degree, involve the other. Nevertheless, proper chest development requires a lot of emphasis on the clavicular pectoralis for two simple reasons. One, it's a small, stubborn muscle that takes its sweet time to grow. Two, the movements that are best for developing it also happen to be great for growing the pectoralis major. The best way to ensure your upper chest doesn't fall behind your pec major in size is to do a lot of incline pressing, hence my inclusion of the incline bench press in the program which emphasizes the clavicular pectoralis more than flat or decline pressing. When doing this exercise, the angle of incline in the bench should be 30 to 45 degrees. I prefer 30 degrees, but some people prefer an incline closer to 45. I recommend that you try various settings ranging between 30 and 45 degrees and see what you like most. The basic setup and movement of the incline bench press is just as you learn for the regular bench press, with a small exception. The bar should pass by the chin and touch just below the collarbones to allow for a vertical bar path. Close Grip Bench Press As I mentioned earlier, as you narrow your grip on the bar, the triceps have to do more of the work. This is undesirable when you're focusing on training your chest, but it's one of my favorite ways to train the triceps. When doing a close grip bench press, your grip should be slightly narrower than shoulder width and no closer. You'll see many guys place their hands just a few inches apart, and this is a bad idea. It puts the shoulders and wrists in a weakened, compromised position. The rest of the setup and movement are the same as the regular bench press. The shoulder blades are screwed into the bench, there's a slight arch in the lower back, the feet are flat on the floor, and the bar moves straight down, touches the bottom of your chest, and moves straight up. If your shoulders or wrists feel uncomfortable at the bottom of the lift, simply widen your grip by about the width of a finger and try again. If this doesn't handle it, widen your grip by another finger width and repeat until it's comfortable, but not so wide that you're turning it into a standard bench press. The Deadlift The deadlift is the ultimate full-body workout, training just about every muscle group in the body, leg muscles, glutes, the entire back, core, and arm muscles. Basically, any muscle that's involved in producing whole body power is involved in the deadlift, and that's why it's an integral part of every serious strength training program. While few people argue its effectiveness for building muscle and strength, some claim it's also one of the dangerous exercises that we should avoid unless we want to have serious back problems one day. At first glance, this fear would seem to make sense, lifting hundreds of pounds off the ground, putting all that pressure on your back particularly your low back and erector spina muscles, would be a recipe for thoracic and lumbar disaster, right? Well, let's start by reviewing a study conducted by researchers at the University of Valencia that set out to determine the most effective way to train the paraspinal muscles, which run down both sides of your spine and play a major role in the prevention of back injuries. Researchers had 25 people with no low back pain perform two types of exercise for their backs. One, body weight exercises like lumbar extensions, 
forward flexions, single leg deadlifts, and bridges. And two, two weighted exercises, deadlifts and lunges, using 70% of their 1RM weight. Muscle activity was measured using electromyography, a technique of measuring and analyzing muscle contractions via electrical activity that occurs in the muscles. The result? Deadlifts most activated the paraspinal muscles, and it wasn't even close. The deadlift's average electromyographic muscle activity was 88% and peaked at 113%, whereas the back extension produced an average activity of 55% and a peak of 58%, and the lunge produced an average of 46% and a peak of 61%. The rest of the exercises, average activities ranged between 29 and 42% muscle activity, with the supine bridge on a BOSU ball being the least effective. Thus, researchers concluded the deadlift is an incredibly effective way to strengthen the paraspinal muscles. Another study, conducted by researchers at the University of Waterloo, was done to determine how much low back flexion deadlifting caused and thus how much strain it put on the vertebrae and lumbar ligament. Did the exercise put the back and low back in particular under excessive strain that could lead to injury? Researchers used real-time X-ray imaging, called fluoroscopy, to watch the spines of elite powerlifters while they fully flexed their spines with no weights and while they deadlifted more than 400 pounds. With the exception of one trial of one subject, all men completed their deadlifts within the normal range of motion they displayed during full flexion. Ligament links were unaffected, indicating that they don't help support the load, but instead limit the range of motion. So as we can see, a proper deadlift effectively strengthens your entire back, including your erector spina muscles, and doesn't force anything unnatural in terms of range of motion. As with the squat and bench press, poor form is what gives the deadlift a bad name. There are many mistakes you can make, but the major no-no is rounding your lower back during the lift, as this shifts much of the stress away from the erector spina muscles to the vertebrae and ligaments. So with that out of the way, let's now learn how to deadlift properly. Deadlift setup. Always start with the bar on the floor, not on the safety pins or on the rack. Your stance should be a bit narrower than shoulder width and your toes should be pointed slightly out. You should stand with the bar above the middle of your feet, the top of your instep. Stand up tall with your chest out and take a deep breath of air into your diaphragm, not your lungs bracing your abs as if you were about to get punched in the stomach. Bend through your knees until your shins touch the bar and your knees are slightly past it, and then lift your chest until your back is in a neutral position and tight. Don't overarch your lower back and don't squeeze your shoulder blades together like with the squat. Just push your chest up and your shoulders and back down. Don't make the newbie mistake of bringing your hips too low with the intention of squatting the weight up. The lower your hips are below optimal, the more they will have to rise before you're able to lift the weight off the floor, which is just wasted movement. Instead, you should feel tightness in your hamstrings and hips as you wedge yourself into what's essentially a half-squat position. Your arms should be completely straight and locked and just outside your legs, leaving enough room for your thumbs to clear your thighs. Grip the bar by placing it into the middle of your palms, not in your fingers. Both palms should be facing in to build grip strength. The other grip option is the mixed grip, where one palm faces in, usually the non-dominant hand, and the other faces out, which can allow you to lift heavier weight. You can see what the starting position looks like in the bonus report. You're now ready to pull. Deadlift Movement Drive your body upward and slightly back as quickly as you can by pushing through your heels. Keep your elbows locked in place and your lower back slightly arched, no rounding. Ensure that your hips and shoulders move up simultaneously. Don't shoot your hips up without also raising your shoulders. You'll feel your hamstrings and hips working hard as you continue to rise. Keep your back neutral and tight the whole way up, and try to keep the bar on as vertically straight of a path as possible. There should be a little lateral movement of the bar as you lift it up. The bar should move up your shins and roll over your knees and thighs, at which point your glutes contract forcefully to bring you into a standing position. At the top, your chest should be out and your shoulders down. Don't lean back, shrug the weight, or roll your shoulders up and back. The next half of the movement is lowering the weight back down to the floor in a controlled manner. Yes, it must go all the way back to the floor. 
This is basically a mirror image of what you did to come up. You begin lowering the bar by pushing your hips back first, letting the bar descend in a straight line, sliding down your thighs until it reaches your knees. You then bend your knees and lower it down your shins. The back stays locked in its tight, neutral position the entire time. Don't try to deliberately slow down the lowering of the weight, especially as you get the bar to your knees. The entire second half of the lift should take about one to two seconds. There are two ways of transitioning into your next rep, the tap-and-go and stop-and-go methods. The tap-and-go method has you tap the floor with the plates and move directly into your next rep, whereas the stop-and-go method has you fully release the plates on the floor for a second before starting your next rep. The latter is harder than the former, but not necessarily better. It's more a matter of finding what feels best for you. I prefer the tap-and-go method, but sometimes I use the stop-and-go method if I'm going particularly heavy. Deadlift Tips Wear long pants and long socks on the day that you'll be deadlifting to prevent shin scraping. This can be caused by poor form but can also be unavoidable depending on the relationship between your limbs and torso and lower body. As with squatting, deadlifting in shoes that have air cushions or gel fillings or overly elevated heels is a bad idea. They compromise stability, cause power loss, and interfere with proper form. Get shoes with flat, hard soles or weightlifting shoes for your deadlifting and squatting, and you'll be better for it. If you start it with bent elbows, you'll end up putting unnecessary strain on your biceps. Keep your elbows straight for the entire lift. Stick with the overhand grip if possible, as it's great for strengthening your grip. As you get stronger, however, you may find that the bar starts falling out of your hands during your sets. If this happens, you can switch to the alternating grip and, if you like, include some grip-specific training in your routine, which you can find here, http colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash grip grip dash training t-r-a-i-n-i-n-g. Too wide of a stance or grip will make the exercise awkward. The deadlift stance is narrower than the squat stance, and it requires that the hands be just outside the legs. Try to crush the bar with your grip. If your knuckles aren't white, you're not squeezing hard enough. If you start the ascension with your hips too high, you'll turn the deadlift into a stiff-legged deadlift, which is more stressful on the lower back and hamstrings. Make sure that you get your hips low enough in the starting position. A common mistake guys make is starting the ascension slowly, which makes it much easier to get stuck. Explode the bar up from the floor as fast as you can by applying as much force through your heels as possible. When you're lowering the weight, if you break your knees too early, you'll hit them with the bar. To avoid this, begin your descent by pushing your hips back first and don't bend your knees until the bar reaches them. Don't strain to look up while deadlifting. Keep your head in a neutral position and in line with your spine. Deadlift Variations Sumo Deadlift The sumo deadlift uses a wide stance, one and a half to two times the width of your shoulders, to shorten the range of motion and limit the shearing force on the lower back. It also can feel more comfortable in the hips than a conventional deadlift, depending on your biomechanics. If you walk with your toes pointed out, the sumo may be better for you. You can see how it looks in the bonus report. The downside of the sumo deadlift is the reduced range of motion, which results in less work done, which means less overall muscle development. Nevertheless, give this variation a try if you lack the flexibility to do a conventional deadlift. If it just feels uncomfortable, certain people's bodies are better suited to the sumo deadlift, or if it's causing low back pain. Hex Bar Deadlift the hex bar or trap bar deadlift is a great way to learn to deadlift because it doesn't require as much hip and ankle mobility to get to the bar and puts less shearing stress on the spine. It also allows you to lift more weight than the conventional deadlift, which may make it a more effective exercise for developing overall lower body power. Again, you can see how the hex bar looks and how the lift works in the bonus report. The conventional deadlift is more effective in strengthening the erector spina and hip muscles, however, because the hex bar deadlift is more like a squat due to the increased load it places on the quadriceps. Romanian deadlift. The RDL, as it's often called, was started by a Romanian powerlifter named Nicu Vlad, who would perform outrageous feats of strength like front squatting 700 pounds while only weighing 220 pounds. 
The RDL is a variation of the deadlift that targets the glutes and hamstrings and minimizes the involvement of the quads and hip muscles. The RDL starts with the weight on safety pins or the lower portion of the rack. You use the same stance and grip as with the regular deadlift and you walk the weight back a step or two. In the start position, your knees are locked, your chest is up, your back is straight and tight, and your eyes should focus on a point on the floor about 10 feet away. When you begin the movement, you unlock your knees just enough to put some tension on the quads and your back should be slightly arched. Start the bar down the thigh in a straight line by pushing the hips back and your torso should lean forward to keep your shoulders directly over the bar. The bar passes over your knees and travels down the shins and you go as low as you can without breaking the extension of your back. Because of the increasing angle of the torso, you probably won't be able to go much further than a few inches past your knees, and that's okay. In fact, if the weight is touching the floor, you're doing it wrong. You're bending your knees. Resist the temptation to relax the tension in the knees at the bottom by flexing them, as this transfers the load from the hamstrings to the quads. Once you've achieved a good stretch in your hamstrings and your back is ready to unlock, start back up. On the way up, keep your chest and back tight and locked into position and move the bar straight up your legs. Hold your back rigid for the entire lift. Don't let the chest sag or the lower back loosen. The Military Press The Military Press is the best all-around shoulder exercise you can perform. It's a simple, easy-to-learn movement that allows for the safe lifting of heavy weights. There are two variations of the military press, standing and seated. The standing variation requires tremendous core and lower back strength to maintain balance, which in turn limits the weight you can lift. While there's nothing inherently wrong with this, I find that heavy deadlifting and squatting every week builds more than enough core and lower back strength, and I prefer to use this lift to maximize the overload on my shoulders. Thus, I go with a seated press and recommend that you do the same. That said, the seated press requires a proper military press station, which you can find an image of in the bonus report in case you're not familiar with this. If your gym doesn't have this piece of equipment, or if you can't rig something like it using a power rack and utility bench, then you can opt for the standing variation, which you can perform in a squat rack. Let's now talk form, starting with the seated press. The seated military press setup. Place your feet flat on the ground about shoulder width apart with your toes and knees slightly turned out. Press your heels into the ground to keep your upper back and butt rooted in place against the back of the bench. Grip the bar like you would during the bench press, about shoulder width and the bar over your wrists, not in your fingers. Your back should be in a neutral position. The Seated Military Press Movement To begin the descent, take a deep breath, tighten your abs and glutes, and press your chest up. Bring the bar straight down towards your clavicle and keep your elbows tucked like you would during the bench press. Don't force them to stay right at your sides and don't let them slide too far behind you. Tilt your head back to allow the bar to pass your nose and chin and look forward, not straight up. This is why a full bench doesn't work for the military press. You can't tilt your head back to get it out of the way and are forced to lower the weight lower down your chest, which is incorrect. There should be a slight arch in your lower back at the bottom of the lift, but don't overdo this as it can cause injury when you start loading more and more weight. If you're arching too much, the weight is probably too heavy. Once the bar has reached your clavicle, raise it straight up along the path of descent, and once it passes your forehead, shift your torso a little forward and squeeze your glutes. Keep raising the bar until your elbows are locked. Your shoulders, traps, and back should be tight and squeezed. The Standing Military Press Setup and Movement The standing press is performed in exactly the same way. You're just standing. The bar rests on the squat rack at the same height as if you were squatting, and once you've unracked it, the movement is as described earlier. To recap, place the feet and grip, shoulder width apart, grip the bar like the bench press, keep the back neutral, descend straight to the clavicles, tilt the head back while looking forward, raise the bar along the same path, Shift the torso forward slightly, squeeze the glutes, and lock out. How to train the bigger, leaner, stronger way. While the theory of muscle confusion is silly and scientifically bankrupt, it's true that your body can respond favorably to doing new exercises after doing the same routine for a bit. Changing things up can also help keep you excited for and interested in your workouts, which improves overall results. 
Thus, the Bigger, Leaner, Stronger program calls for changing your routine every eight weeks. We'll get more into the actual programming in the next chapter, but first I want to give you the list of approved exercises so you can build your own workouts as well as some general tips on training each muscle group. The exercises I recommend are the ones I found most effective for building a big, strong body. They are listed in order of seniority. The first exercise is what I feel is most important for developing the muscle group. The second is second most important, and so forth. As you'll see in the bonus report, the program I've developed has you performing all of them over the course of your first year. You might be surprised at how few choices there are for each muscle group, and that's because while there are an overwhelming number of exercises we could do to train the various muscle groups in our body, a small minority actually deliver the goods. Pareto's 80-20 principle at work. In terms of how to do the exercises, instead of filling another 30 pages with images and descriptions, I'd rather share videos with you instead. You can find links to videos on proper form for all exercises in the bonus report. Chest. Your goal shouldn't be to just have a big chest, because just adding size willy-nilly won't necessarily give you the look you want. The goal is to have a big, proportionate chest that has fully developed upper and lower portions. The exercises that best accomplish this are few, and they maximally recruit muscle fibers and allow for heavy, progressive overload without dramatically increasing the risk of injury. Here they are. Incline barbell bench press. Incline dumbbell bench press. Flat barbell bench press. Flat dumbbell bench press. Dip. Chest variation. These are the exercises you must master if you want to build an impressive chest, period. Forget cable work, dumbbell flies, push-up variations, machines, and every other type of chest exercise out there for now. They just aren't nearly as effective as the previously mentioned core foundation-building lifts and are only for advanced weightlifters who have already paid their dues with the heavy pressing to build big, strong pecs. Another common exercise I've left off the list is any type of decline press. This wasn't a mistake. The reason I'm shunning this popular exercise is that decline pressing is simply less effective than incline and flat pressing for training the pecs. Due to its reduced range of motion, it causes less stimulation of both the pectoralis major and clavicular pectoralis. A common argument for doing decline presses is to work the lowest portion of the pectoralis major, but dips are a far superior exercise for accomplishing this, while also training more muscles overall and building upper body balance and coordination. As you know, a major part of building a great chest is focusing on your incline pressing more than anything else. If you don't, your upper chest will fall behind in development, which will look stranger and stranger as your pectoralis major gets larger and larger. As most people's upper chests are already behind, this usually means starting each chest workout with three to six sets of incline pressing for four to six months straight. Flat pressing is done as well, but always after the incline pressing. I usually rotate between dumbbell-centric and barbell-centric routines. For example, I'll do a routine of incline dumbbell presses, flat dumbbell press, and weighted dips for eight weeks, and then switch to a routine of flat bench press, incline bench press, and flat dumbbell press for the next eight. Back. There are a handful of muscles that make up the bulk of the back, and they need to be well-developed, including the trapezius, rhomboids, latissimus dorsi, erector spina, teres major and minor, and infraspinatus. You can see how they look in the bonus report. Here's the goal in terms of overall back development. Large but not overdeveloped traps that establish the upper back. Wide lats that extend low down the torso, creating that pleasing V taper. Bulky rhomboids that create valleys when flexed. Clear development and separation in the teres muscles and infraspinatus. And a thick Christmas tree structure in the lower back. And here are the exercises that get the job done. Barbell deadlift, barbell row, one-arm dumbbell row, pull-up, lat pull-down, front and close grip, T-bar row, seated cable row, wide and close grip, chin-up, barbell shrug. The deadlift is by far the most effective back exercise you can do. You just can't beat it for all-around development and strength, and that's why you'll be doing it every week. Every back workout will start with it. You're going to need all the energy you can muster to pull heavy weight. 
The barbell row, one-arm dumbbell row, and pull-up, especially the wide grip pull-up, are almost tied in my book as each is a fantastic all-around back builder. The shrugs are listed last because they only train the traps and are only included in workouts if trap development is lagging. In terms of programming your own workouts, I highly recommend that you always start with the deadlift. From there, move to a wide-gripped pulling movement like the barbell or T-bar row or front lat pull-down or wide-grip pull-up, weighted if you can, followed by a more narrow-gripped pulling movement like the one-arm dumbbell row, close-grip lat pull-down, close-grip seated row, or chin-up. Shoulders. Your shoulders consist of three major muscles, known as deltoids, and you can see how they look in the bonus report. It's important to develop all three heads of this muscle group, because if one is lagging, it will be painfully obvious. In most cases, the medial and posterior deltoids need the most work because the anterior deltoids get worked pretty intensely with proper chest training. The other two heads don't, however. Here are the exercises I recommend focusing on in your shoulder training. Seated Barbell Military Press or Standing Barbell Military Press Seated Dumbbell Press or Arnold Dumbbell Press Dumbbell Side Lateral Raise or One-Arm Dumbbell Side Lateral Raise Rear Delt Raise, Bent Over or Seated Face Pull Barbell Rear Delt Row Dumbbell Front Raise As you can see, I'm a fan of pressing, as with the chest, you just can't beat heavy pressing for developing your shoulders. And as a natural weightlifter, you're going to need as much help as you can get in this department. If all you do is press, however, you'll find that your middle and rear heads of your deltoids fall behind in development. This is why a good shoulder workout trains all three heads of the muscle, by having you press as well as do side raises and something for the rear delts. Just like any other muscle group, the shoulders can benefit from higher rep work, but you have to emphasize the heavy weightlifting if you want them to grow. As a side note, the dumbbell front raise is a good exercise, but don't do this in place of a barbell or dumbbell press, as it simply doesn't build mass like they do. If you're particularly weak on your presses, the front raise can be helpful in strengthening many of the small supporting muscles required for the tougher lifts, but I recommend that you do it after your pressing, not instead of it. Legs I understand the temptation to skip legs day. I used to do it all the time, and am paying the price now. My legs have come a long way, but are still behind my upper body in overall development, and my calves are still too small. I'm working on it. Before we get to the training, I'd like to quickly review the major muscles of the leg so we know what we're looking to develop. The quadriceps is a group of four muscles that compose the bulk of the muscle on the front of the thigh. The four heads of the quadriceps are the rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, and vastus intermedius. You'll find a picture of these muscles in the bonus report. The back of the leg is dominated by three muscles that contract the hamstring tendon, which are the semitendinosus, semimembranosus, and biceps femoris, and which are also depicted in the bonus report. 